Hi, we're Lauren Roof and Rachel Jacobson, and this is Mystical Thinking, a podcast for exploring spiritual identity through the lens of the mystics, thinkers, and everyday people. The Russian invasion of Ukraine happened on February 24th, which was the day we released our first episode of this podcast. And Lauren and I agonized over whether to launch a creative project on the same day a major war broke out. It felt like adding to the noise of an already emotionally intense moment. Like many of you navigating your life against the backdrop of what's happening in the world, we had questions like, should we bring any message of beauty or hope? Is that disrespectful or even wrong? After some discussion, we shipped our creative project into the world anyway. In the end, this felt true to the human experience. Messy clashes between joy and pain, and in some ways, a creative act of resilience in the face of darkness and despair. Staying present and grounded when a battle of life and death rages is not something that comes easily to most of us. We, like many, have cried over the headlines of war in Ukraine, and the line of questioning in our souls often sounds like, what can I possibly do to stop this? Activist and theologian Jim Wallace asked this of racial injustice, but it also applies to the injustices committed in war. Let nobody give you the impression that only time will solve the problem. That is a myth, and it is a myth because time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do what is right. So in the first few weeks of April, my sister Marie and I joined a humanitarian trip with five others um, through a spontaneous invitation from our friend Tom. Tom runs a nonprofit with his wife, Alexis, called 501 Collective, and they partner with other global nonprofits. Eastern Europe was an entirely new experience for everyone on the trip. I have personally lived for a stint in the UK, but I had never been further east than Paris. I asked Tom before we left, what is this going to be like? And there weren't a lot of answers, which he kind of charmingly brushed aside as non-essential. The important part, he said, was being willing to help and being flexible. But to be honest, the lack of detail made me really nervous. Like, what the heck are we stepping into? This is a war zone, and there's a lot of unknowns. But the main theme of this trip, honestly, for both Marie and I was urgency. Something needs to be done. Someone needs to go. And so through the swift generosity of many of my friends and coworkers, I was able to set up a fundraiser and in just 20 hours raise over $4,000 for this trip. So at that point, some of my doubts and anxieties kind of got pushed aside and I was like, okay, this is officially bigger than me. We need to go. So we both got off work and we flew halfway across the world and we have a lot to say about it. <laughs> so today, Marie is here with me to share a bit of her experience of this trip as well. But first, just let me give you a little intro to her credentials. She is a nurse in Bend, Oregon, with over a decade of emergency medical experience. She is also a veteran of the COVID-19 pandemic serving in the emergency room, 
which was, as many of you know, the front door to a lot of the conflict and anxieties around vaccinations we experienced as a nation. So Marie came on this trip kind of with the perception of helping at the border and being a nurse staffing the medical trailer that the nonprofit we, we had worked with set up at the border. But a lot unfolded and Marie and I were both used in ways like we didn't expect on this trip. So I'm gonna step back and let her share a little bit of her experience in Romania. Thanks for allowing me to be a part of this podcast. I can't wait to share more about all the beautiful people doing so many beautiful things for each other across the world. But before we delve in, Lauren had mentioned to me yesterday being a veteran of COVID, which I think there's really no better way to describe the last few years. I was on the front lines as an ER nurse when the pandemic was declared. And after two long years in the fight against COVID, I became this sort of shell of a person trying to bury every emotion in order to get through another day at the hospital. Then politics joined forces and the war against COVID became really a a war among ourselves. Um, No space was held for differing opinions. Our future as medical workers became bleak when the news of a new variant hit the headlines. So eventually I got to this place where I had officially lost the capacity to feel anything. Immediately, I knew something had to change. I needed to serve somewhere, anywhere outside of the ER. And suddenly this opportunity presented itself. And in less than 48 hours, I decided to go. And I remember informing a coworker of my decision to leave the country. And his response was, great idea, Marie, head to a war-torn nation to help refuel your life. I laughed because it didn't make much sense, but I knew I had this strong desire to serve. And I was losing myself and needed a sort of rekindling of the soul. And I am so incredibly thankful that I went because it was such an enriching and healing experience. Um, We saw global, national, and local communities all united in their efforts to aid Ukraine. And it was such a refreshing contrast to to the division I saw happening back home. So it restored my faith in humanity, gave me hope for our country's future. And I really needed this shift in perspective more than ever. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is is important to discuss as we kind of unfold these experiences is what was it like to be on the border of Romania and Ukraine? Like a lot of us saw um, these images of, you know, five mile long lines of people waiting in the snow with their children, like abandoning their cars to get across the border. And so when Marie and I went, we had that image in our head as many of us do, you know, just following the news. It's like, that's all you have is just this, this news bite in this image of what this experience might be like. So we landed in Romania and toured three different refugee centers that we'd be partnering with. And then we decided to go to the border. So getting to the border, just to kind of explain what it's like to people Arriving there, it was very organized. We anticipated chaos because of the number of people that were crossing over. The border is a really windswept place. It's 
kind of has it really does just have an ominous feel mostly because of the weather and it's very barren and just harsh it's cold outside people have like several layers on that are you know volunteers as well as the refugees coming across and it's a weird aspect of it was like it was overpopulated with crows there were black crows (laughs) everywhere and it made it feel like all I could think of was like Edgar Allan Poe I don't know it just (laughs) I don't know. I didn't have any expectations of it, but it just felt a little bit bleak. So both street, both sides of the streets are lined with free food and medical care tents. So it basically provides refugees with a meal as soon as they cross over. And then there's these little mini shops set up to get things like toiletries, free um, prepaid phone cards, diapers, medications, anything that might meet an immediate need. One of the things that we were not expecting is it was very quiet when we went. There will only maybe a trickle of people coming across, maybe 10 people a day, maybe 50, depending on the day and time. But it was kind of encouraging to see, okay, this has slowed down. The migration of people has slowed down. People have made it across. So it wasn't necessarily a negative thing. However, Marie, with her medical background, was thinking, I'm going to be sitting at the border, you know, helping people and Mm -hmm. diagnosing or whatever it is you do as a nurse. (laughs) And um, that was not the case. So one of the things that I kind of did was I just observed and I took in, you know, people's stories, what was happening. Yeah, I worked in the medical trailer uh, with another nurse from YWAM. And in the trailer, we saw a lot of nausea, um, people dealing with motion sickness from being in a car all day coming through the border, um, a lot of dehydration, and a lot of just shell-shocked emotions. And one thing that was really neat to see, they were not bombarded with like questions of Like, where are you going to go? What are your plans? Because they didn't even have the ability to process complex ideas or thoughts at that moment. They they only knew what was going to happen the next minute. Um, Their processing capabilities were significantly decreased. And so they were they were given a warm place to sit down, have a good home cooked meal from one of the tents and they even had a veterinarian tent because a lot of people would come over, refugees would come over with animals. So every single need was thought of at the border. And it was such a beautiful thing to see everything taken care of and people just working together to provide. And let me just say right now that the Romanian people have done a massive, massive job taking care of their neighbors. Marie and I were just absolutely floored by the generosity of people. I mean, the nonprofits we worked with, like a lot of them haven't slept eight hours in like a month, over a month, Mm -hmm. because they're just compelled by, you know, the importance of helping. They just turned it on and they were, Mm -hmm. they're going for it. And I, I was just so honored, honestly, to be alongside people like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and some of the directors of the refugee centers where these refugees would be transported to after the border they would set up cots at the door so 
no guests would be unwelcomed and they saw a need and they met it and they didn't know what the next day would look like if they would even have the funds to provide support and help but they did it anyways and so much good is happening because of it wow what does it look like for the ukrainians that are crossing that border and we spoke to this a little bit just i mean it's probably we talk about fight or flight mode i mean that's got to be like the the ultimate kind of survival mode in terms of kind of just you just are taking things one step at a time you probably don't have a plan so after they go through and you know they receive care if they need it and maybe some supplies what does that look like for them where do they go yes so they they are given some time at the border to kind of gather their emotions uh have their basic needs met and Mm -hmm. then the firemen the pompier transport them from the the border to refugee centers located in Suchava, which is 40 miles inland from the border. And there they're given a clean bed to sleep in, three meals a day. They're met with a team of a uh, team that works within the refugee center who manage manages logistics and helps get them to another place once they feel ready to start planning. They're welcome to stay as long as they need. Um, and they're, they're provided for in, in every way. And one thing that we saw at the border was before they would come across, a lot of the refugees didn't know that they wouldn't have to pay for anything in getting them to the next step. And so what was happening before they they knew that information was there was some trafficking that was happening at the border human trafficking and these guys would intersect these women and children before they knew that they didn't have to pay for anything and were told pay me whatever i'll take care of your needs and then they would disappear and so there were huge efforts being put forth to educate and get to these women and children as soon as possible to let them know that that they will be cared for with trusted individuals. Right. So the firemen, they're at the front door of the border. So you've got the Ukrainian side border, then you've got the Romanian border. And at the Romanian border, in the gate, when people are walking through, there's a line of probably five uniformed firemen on each side. And they roll people's suitcases to their secure vans and they talk to them and they're immediately intercepting them right there because the risk of human trafficking is extremely high. In the Mexico-U.S. border right now, Ukrainian women and children are disappearing at pretty alarming rates. Mm -hmm. And that is due to human trafficking. And there are always people that will take advantage of people in a vulnerable state. Wait, that's happening. You said at the Mexico-U.S. border? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Because this type of crisis event invites mm-hmm. bad actors. Right. It's horrible to think about, but it, it yeah. is happening. Mm-hmm. So they are doing an excellent job of interrupting that process by providing refugees a safe way to get connected to services. And I mean, you've got to think about this. Like people are leaving home. They're leaving every known thing in their life. They're leaving loved ones behind 
a lot of them don't know and trust that there's going to be a net on the other side to catch them. They're thinking, what if nobody helps me? What if I become homeless? If I leave my country? What if my kids starve? I never used to understand why wouldn't they leave if their, their city is being bombed? Like, why wouldn't they want to leave? And it's because they don't know, you know, that they're going to be caught on the other side. And so one of the really incredible things we saw at the border is refugees volunteering as translators and helping refugees. Mm -hmm. And one of the volunteers we met, her name is Anastasia. She is, she knows Ukrainian. She knows Russian. She knows English really well because she was teaching English before the war broke out to Ukrainians. So she and her daughter came across the border. She has an eight-year-old daughter named Carolina. And the interesting part about Anastasia's story is she was actually forced from her home in 2014 when Russia invaded, first invaded Eastern Ukraine in the Donetsk region, which a lot of people don't know about because it wasn't like as public as what we're seeing now, right, with the war. She actually had to evacuate her home twice. So the second time was when war broke out in February. And so she has like truly been through so much because she's lost her home twice. And she decided to come across the border into Romania. Her boyfriend is in Kharkiv fighting. He's like a special forces Ukrainian soldier. And so he's in like the thick of conflict right now. And she talks to him about once a day. I was going to ask that, like, is she able to be in touch with him? And what does that look like? Yeah. So I asked her that. And she said that they talk about once a day. She's like, some days I don't hear from him. And I just know he's busy. Wow. And she said, I just, I keep busy. Just the most endlessly, like, positive person always has a smile on her face. It's like, you know, when I had a conversation with him, like, he was recommending, you know, he knew what was coming. Uh, before the war started and he was encouraging her to pack her suitcase and leave Mm -hmm. and he was like you know you could go to Bulgaria I hear they're putting you know people up in these nice resorts and it's all paid you could just stay in Bulgaria there's you know you could go to a nice beach and she's like a beach what would I do there I'm not Mm -hmm. gonna do that she's Mm -hmm. like I'm gonna serve my country which is helping refugees yeah well leaving that thing to leave what you know the people you love I mean I can't imagine having to make that decision and and then to go into the unknown Lauren like you're talking about like people not necessarily knowing what's on the you know that there's services available like you've if you've never been through that how would you know what to expect and 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 just the devastation of having to um leave the life you've made with people you love and 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 flee I mean that just it just is so hard to fathom yes so like the amount of trust that that must have taken her is just so incredible just to go over the border with her daughter and not know what was going to happen next. <clears throat> right. And she's living in an apartment right now with like 10 people. Like she doesn't have her life sorted out, but she's she is finding purpose and a mission to help other people. And she's serving and the next step will come whenever that happens. I I guess that's just the theme of it. The next step, 
day by day for a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't know what the future looks like. And a lot of them honestly want to stay close to the border in case they have to go across because they want to go and see their husband or their brother or their nephew or their grandfather who's staying back. They, they want access to the people they love. And so another story that we kind of wanted to make sure we had time to share about was getting to go into Ukraine for the day on one of these humanitarian food missions. I think the awareness is coming out more now um, on the news, but the biggest need right now in Ukraine, other than the military side of like supplying them with arms, is actually food. So as you can imagine, a country that gets disrupted um, by shelling and bombing and siege which is what we're seeing the the russian tactic is in a lot of these cities is basically starving people out so what we're seeing is a massive infrastructure disruption so you can't the stores don't get resupplied there's no running water there's no power so there's no way for people to cook and provide food for themselves so what we're seeing happening is all of these nonprofits that we worked with both uh, fight for freedom and vital solutions is two to three times a week. They're filling up these massive semi trailers mm-hmm. full of food and su- medical supplies and power generators and whatever people need um, and driving them into Ukraine. And we uh, drove it into a city called Chernovitz, Ukraine, um, which is the like 50 miles inland Mm -hmm. from Romania from Romania our first stop was the Ukrainian side of the border so there's two sides of the border the Romanian side and the Ukrainian side and we're stopped by a border guard and this was probably one of the saddest moments of the trip we were stopped and the border guard unzipped his vest and we gave him cans of food and he stuffed all the cans of food into his vest, zipped it up while he had his back towards um, his other border guard uh, co-workers and pretended like nothing ha- happened because he was so desperate for food. And so we left the Ukrainian border. We went inland and then arrived in this square full of people. Before you describe that experience, I just want you to share what does the country look like itself? Because I think this is important for people to understand. Mm -hmm. The only images we see of Ukraine are bombed out cities, you know, things on fire, dead bodies in the street. Like, that's what we see. But the the country itself is beautiful. And there's parts of it that are still perfectly intact. It's a a country about the size of Texas. So it's large. So we arrived in the city. And this is a city where 80,000 refugees have fled from the conflict in the east and uh, now closer to probably a hundred thousand with recent quarters opening up from Mariupol which as we all know has been under relentless bombardment from Russia and so we arrived to this town square full of hundreds of people we opened the back doors of our van and people just started rushing to the van and it got to a point where it became pretty unsafe um, because people were 
trampling over each other, trying to get to us. And kids and elderly women were being pinned between the ramp and us. And so it was quickly devolving into chaos. You know, these are the things you don't think about. You think, oh, it's going to be very peaceful and orderly. And then you think, oh, people are starving and they're going to do whatever they can do um, to get a box of food. Anastasia, our translator, kind of stood at the front and was, she's our Ukrainian speaking person. So she was attempting to restore order. We had our driver come up and kind of help facilitate handing out these boxes. The hard part is there's no way to know who's with what family. And a lot of people would send multiple family members in line to get boxes. And so some people ended up with four boxes and other people ended up with none. Mm-hmm. And that was really tough for us to see because it's it's a survival situation. People are doing what they can to get food. They don't have a job. They don't have money to buy food. And so they're getting these free services. But then you have people, you know, you have a bit of like chaos going on. And if there's not enough, that's got to be a tough situation. Is there food being brought in daily or? So the government has some role in like um, handing out like bags of groceries. So Mm -hmm. after people received from us, they would stand in another line where the government, because we were like doing this in front of a government building, Mm -hmm. the government was handing out like little bags of food, but you know, it would probably last people maybe two to three days a week, depending on how many mm-hmm. people are in your household. And um, yeah, but these convoys are going in two to three times a week from our organizations we're working with. So yeah, it's happening like as frequently as they can. Um, but obviously, like you're looking at someone and they're asking, when are you coming back? And you can tell they didn't get a box. And it yeah. just, it's devastating. Marie and I, it's so weird because we expected like, this is going to feel so amazing to like go and give food away. And then we both looked at each Mm -hmm. other and we're just like, this is awful. Yeah, it was truly heartbreaking to witness, um, to see people so desperate for food. And they're like clothed in, like they're clean and they're... They have an Apple watch on, they have makeup Mm -hmm. on, like they don't look, you know, like you would see a homeless person coming up begging for food. That's not what we're seeing. It's just people that don't have jobs and their whole life has been upended by war. Right. Like you said, Lauren, the infrastructure has just been completely devastated. So the impact of that is, is just very complex and far reaching. So after that experience, we had a little bit of time to drive downtown uh, in Chernovitz And that was a neat experience because Anastasia um, showed us uh, her favorite coffee shop, got a chance to kind of decompress and eat good pastries. And I think it was a really important thing for Anastasia to uh, show us because it it probably restored a sense of normalcy in, in her life when so much was going wrong. And yeah, that was an unexpected gift at the end of the day. Yeah, it was just as surreal as it sounds to be like in a in a place that the world has kind of like condemned in a in a certain way like this is a country at war. This is a country that's being attacked and you're downtown and the sky is blue and children's bounce houses are set up and people are running their normal errands and washing their cars and 
it's a sense of like, yes, adaptation to survive. People are, are resilient and they are defiant in their survival. Mm-hmm. If I came back from, from Ukraine with any lesson I could share with people, it's that Ukrainian people are the strongest people on earth and they will win this conflict. There's no doubt in my mind. They are defiant to survive what is happening and they are resourceful and they're using every means possible to fight this war. Some are on the front line and some are at the border translating. Yeah, Lauren, I think you speak to something interesting in that just the adaption, uh, sorry, adaptation we do in, in terms of like when there's, I mean, I haven't been in that situation, but the way that people draw on the sense of resiliency and and the way that life kind of requires that we carry on as much as we can, even even as there's so much disruption. And I think that that was interesting to me to hear about and think about with um, following along on your stories and and just um, even thinking of you like being in a coffee shop in a part of Ukraine. And, and yeah, I guess that's just an interesting piece to me. Like, what do we do in the midst of devastation and how do people grapple with that? And, and there, I mean, we still have, we still have rhythms that we attend to in a way, right? Like we have to eat and we have to survive and we have to move forward and take care of the people around us. And um, I just, I guess I just have been kind of amazed at those images too and seeing how people do that in light of what's happening. Right. Like it's encouraging. Like there's so many stories that we didn't get to witness or experience, but we heard about and people shared with us. Um, and it's just, the human spirit is incredible. I think of the book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, in kind of this conversation, mm-hmm. because he talks about our deepest meaning to love others, to care for others, to have a purpose in life is what keeps us alive. As soon as we lose that, like we lose the ability to thrive. And I think, you know, one of the more poignant things that sticks out to me is when people would cross over the border from what I've, I've heard from other people, because I obviously don't understand the language. So everything had to be translated, but women and children across the border and you think, Oh, there's such relief. They're safe now, but really they're racked with anxiety because they, they want their husband. They want their son to be safe. They want, their, you know, loved one that they left behind to be safe. And they're not concerned about themselves. They're concerned about the people they left behind. And, but that sense of carrying on and like doing the best that you can is really what keeps them going. The hope of reuniting, the hope of the war ending and them being able to return back home. Yeah, we have, we know some people peripherally who um, live in a village in Ukraine and they are now in Germany. Um, And they were just talking about, they shared some videos and they were just talking about how much they miss home, how much they miss their community and their life there. And, and even as they're doing their best to, to kind of set up, a life where they're at and, and make a way in, in kind of the temporary place that they're living. Um, there's just this longing and desire to be back home with their pets and their community. And, you know, just that connection to, 
to the place that we that we make our life is really strong yeah the sense of yearning to get back to their homes to start rebuild to start to rebuild Ukraine was uh, a common theme that we encountered anyone with the ability to speak the Russian language or Ukrainian would be so helpful in like the efforts going forward because I mean as you can imagine this country is many parts of it are destroyed and there will come a time when peace happens and people are able to safely return and so with that comes a massive need for reconstruction and so even within like the organizations we worked with in Romania they're trying to expand their facility as fast as possible because they're receiving a lot of orphans from this conflict and so construction workers are really needed because their skill set and being able to come help build out the third level of this building Marie maybe you can speak a little bit to like fight for freedom there's this one facility that we visited in Romania that used to be an old communist building mm-hmm. yeah and yeah, was that is- where you were painting I think I saw a story update about that yeah yeah that's exactly where we okay. were yeah so a little bit of history about uh fight for freedom so originally the the original intention for the building was to be a, a prison reform rehabilitation um center and then overnight they shifted focus into housing women and children um in refugee care the building itself was a former com- communist officers quarters um, where the government facilitated oppression of its own people. And when communism fell in 1989, the, the building was then vacated and eventually obtained for the nonprofit's use. So underneath the building, we got to see there's this huge underground bunker that was left behind um, Highly don't recommend it <laughs> if you're not a fan of small spaces or spiders. Oh, gross. <laughs> it was very dark and creepy. Yeah. Um, so during our time there, we were able to help finish tiling, painting, sanding the next level in order to be ready to receive uh, refugees. And as soon as you enter the, the building, you're met with this explosion of bright colors and beautiful white walls, nice, huge windows. And so it's really like a place I was like, I would I would want to stay here if I had nowhere to stay. It's not bleak. It It's really a beautiful, they've done a beautiful job. And there's, uh, there were teams from America. There was someone from the Netherlands there. There's a team from Greece there. Like people are just coming mm-hmm. in. 24-7, like, there's a, a new filling of, of volunteers to help finish this building. And so it's probably a construction project manager's nightmare, right? Because it's like, <laughs> everyone's just picking up a tool, and you're like, okay, <laughs> what are you doing? But um, it was beautiful to see that communal um, rallying, and they have the whole third level unfinished, and it needs to be gutted and, and rebuilt. And so there's an opportunity actually to join a trip that's happening in August with the team that we went with personally um, to help them with this construction project. So if Mm -hmm. anyone listening is interested in that, and even if you're not a construction worker and you're just a normal person, 
that wants to help, like there's a place for you to help. You don't need to only have the language ability or, you know, a specific Mm -hmm. trade. One of the things that I struggled with in deciding to go on this trip was, was the fact that I'm not a medical person. And I thought like, I'm not a nurse. I just, I don't know if I'll be useful. And I told Marie this Mm -hmm. when we were talking about going and she's like, you don't need to be a nurse to help. And there's a lot of barriers and doubts that hold people back from engaging in a volunteer experience And all I can say to you is if your heart is moved by this conflict and there is even an inch of space in you for like the possibility of going, you should go. Yes, agreed. And there's so much uh, you can be just through your presence. Um, If you don't have one of the skills we listed, solely your presence alone is super powerful. And one of the days... I got to spend just coloring with this uh, girl named Vanessa. She was probably like 10 years old. And I just sat there with her and she didn't smile for a while. And then uh, we couldn't even communicate. But I really felt that me just being by her side, coloring with her was what she needed. And soon or we, we had the opportunity to purchase uh, like toys and a trampoline for some of these centers and we constructed that and sh- like sh- she just lit up when she saw the trampoline and so that was really neat to see the the children playing and again restoring a sense of normalcy yeah it was really beautiful to be able to get to do something so simple but so impactful. Marie this might be a side note too but that's really interesting that you the the trampoline thing. Cause I, I was just listening to a podcast where they were talking about play like kids naturally in, in, in the midst of trauma and traumatic events um, that, that part of our body processing that is through play and movement. And, um, and they were talking about how kids naturally kind of gravitate toward that and know to do that. Um, but that just seems neat to, to be creating a space where there's activities or things that can help with that and help kids do the things that are going to help them begin to heal and and to begin to process some of the trauma they've been through. Yeah, it, it definitely is a way for them to cope. And we saw that for sure. I think I would go so far as to say that kids are the most resilient of all Mm -hmm. in this conflict. Children have just this powerful ability to adapt and cope. And, you know, maybe it's partly from the fact that they don't comprehend everything that's happening, but on the same hand, they deeply feel the emotions right. the experience of their parents. They read faces. They're very intelligent. And so it just, it was kind of a neat opportunity to see how, I just want to say like how well Romanians are doing in this conflict, like how well they're serving the population that's coming through. And a lot of these people you know, they're not living in the center for months, maybe on the rare occasion, a few of them do, but they're moving on to other countries. They're going to Spain, they're going to Italy, they're going to Germany or Poland. So it's a temporary, is it a temporary stopping point for them? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you get this gift of like an afternoon with someone and then they're gone and then Mm -hmm. a new person comes in. And so it's really, you know, very transitional 
but very important. And I hope that those kids like have good memories of, you know, their time that they spent with people. And I, I think that's like the goal of any volunteer is just to have, make it feel a little lighter, just even for an afternoon um, for someone. Yeah. And that's where these volunteer teams that come from all over the world are vital is because the, the volunteers that have been there in Romania from day one are getting tired. And so it's whether it's before work or after work, they're coming to these centers to help and they're getting tired. And so, yeah, volunteering is very important in these times. That's helpful to hear because I, I may have mentioned this to Lauren too. I think there's this question, maybe for those of us in the West or those of us that feel physically far away from what's happening. Um, like, do we send money? Like, what do we do? What can we do? And is, does going make sense? Does it make sense to send money to support those that are the people that are there, the efforts that are already on the ground? Um, but yeah, I think that's a question. So it's, it's good to hear you two speak to that. Yeah, I would say doing something is preferable than doing nothing. So I guess it's every, every person can ask it of themselves. Like, do I have the time off work to go on a trip? Could I, do I just have monetary resources right now? Do I just have, you know, the ability to support a Ukrainian refugee family that's here in my community? Do I have the ability to go to the Mexico-US border and serve Ukrainian refugees there? There's so many possibilities. And, but I do think, I will say there's something about the experience of leaving normalcy, leaving your schedule and your control over your life and kind of just opening yourself up to this different experience of life in a different place that is life-changing. And Mm -hmm. I think, especially for Marie, this was important for her to be able to serve people in a different context than the emergency Mm -hmm. room. So I would just say if anyone feels like weary or maybe like, for me, it's not being a veteran in the emergency room. It's been a sense of, of just apathy and a bit of disillusionment and a bit of I guess um, stagnation in life Mm -hmm. and for me to like go on that experience was pure gift because not that it makes you more grateful for what you have because a lot of people talk about that when they go on these experiences it's a sense of I don't need xyz to be happy I actually only need the basics of life. And it just, I don't know, it just recenters you in a way that just, I don't know, some of these other ways of giving wouldn't do that. But I don't want to downplay giving at all because it's very, very needed. Your money, if you give to some of these organizations, World Kitchen, I just want to plug at the very end of this episode because they are doing an incredible job feeding people. They're setting up these kitchens in Ukraine and they're, they're keeping people alive. I just think if you have money, give money. Like if you have time, give time, just do whatever you can. But yeah, it's just the time is now there's an urgency to it because when you're on the ground and you're looking into someone's eyes that like is hungry, you just realize that even giving a fraction of what you have makes a massive difference. So just know that 
your life makes a massive difference. Well, Lauren, I think there's a a piece to that too, that you're speaking to. Um, We're bombarded with so much, like we're exposed to so much of what's happening in the world. And often I think for those of us, like in the West, like from a pretty comfortable place, um, we see need and, and it's kind of like, where do we start? And we have our own needs too. I don't, I don't think there's like, you know, we're at this place of like, we have it all figured out by any means, but um, our, our, our needs are met right to some degree. And, um, and I think it's easy to get kind of overwhelmed with what we see and just to stay a little bit stuck. And Lauren, even you, and I think you and I had that conversation before you left, like that sense, even as we look at like the mystics and talk about what it means to be a mystic or that invitation, I think you were talking about like the activism piece and wanting to, to make that more part of your life or, or an invitation to more of that, I guess, in your life, you could probably speak to what, what exactly you were saying then. But um, I think we sometimes have this idea of a mystic as someone who is kind of spiritually enlightened and, and detached by the detached from the world or untouched by the world. Um, and maybe that's a bit of exaggeration in terms of what our perceptions may be. Um, but there's this sense that the work of a mystic prepares people to respond to injustices in the world. I think it was a German contemplative, Dorothy Sowell. I, I may be butchering her last name, but um, she spoke of the three things that typically hold people in bondage um, as ego, possession, and violence. And she believed that violence originated from the sense of separation from the other. And I think there's this practicality to mysticism that invites us to understand the divine or God's presence and imprint within ourselves and within the other, uh, that our connection to ourselves is also our connection to one another. Um, She called this borrowing the eyes of God. Um, And that's the invitation, I think, to move away from compartmentalization and to replace division and the sense of ourselves as separate from the other um, with mutuality and community. And And so I think giving money can be, right, a big piece of that, but there must be something about going or or showing up even if it's locally right and the what that does for us too and how that um that can bring us together in a way that um not to demean giving at all because that's there oftentimes i think that can be a a big piece right of of, uh, mobilizing people that are already involved or already on the ground um but i think as lauren you and i were talking about this and thinking about the activism piece um I think looking at how the mystics invite us to not just contemplation, but also action can be, I don't think they're separate. No, you're so right, Rachel. I thank you for bringing that forward because I did, I spent a lot of the pandemic reading because Mm -hmm. there was nothing else to do. Right. And I read a lot of mystical literature and a lot of it is like this self-denying, sacrificial, scrubbing floors in a monastery person. And I'm like, wow, I don't do that. (laughs) I don't even come close to doing that. Uh, And then kind of, you know, letting that question settle in my spirit and asking, what can I do that impacts my community, especially at a time where, you know, communal events were canceled and Mm -hmm. we were, there's this looming fear of infection and you know, sickness and death. So I think community and rebuilding community is the answer to coming out of this pandemic, talking to your neighbors, baking, you know, for your neighbors, 
it starts at the grassroot level. And I really think, yeah, there is a piece in which our, our spirituality gets disembodied where we are collecting information. And I am the foremost person that's guilty of this because (laughs) I love learning, but there's a piece of my soul that becomes disconnected from not reality, but just community and uh, relationship and restoring that capacity in yourself by taking a risk and maybe seeing like even within your own community, what, what nonprofits need supporting and maybe volunteering again. These are the things that keep us connected. And there's this sense of joy that comes from giving of yourself in relationship that you can't get any other way. And, you know, you talk, you hear about these like great people that serve like Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela and these just iconic people. And they talk about like the selfishness of their own giving because they're receiving so much joy from the experience. And I continue to learn from them and I continue to learn from the people that I met because just because I've had this experience doesn't make me an expert in giving in the least. Um, But I, I think there is a shift that happens internally just to know your life can impact other people in a positive way does more for you than maybe like sitting in a meditation sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's, I I love that Lauren. I, I feel a lot of that too. I think just that sense of like, is, Am I kind of just philosophizing about things and learning about things? Am I actually moving into action? And a lot of what the mystics talk about is that inner, that those inner shifts becoming something that moves outside of you and, and, and being something that moves you to action. And that's a challenge for me too. And something that I, I want to integrate more into my life. And Marie, I go back to something you said at the beginning and kind of, I think you touched on like the weariness you felt from some of the disunity and, and what you were experiencing after being in the ER for the past couple of years and, and what like this united, being united in something, what that shifted in you. And I think that just felt really profound because I think that we feel the division acutely, you know, all different ways, but um, yes, and what that did for you. Yeah. And going on the trip, like Romania was filled to the brim of people lovers and such a beautiful thing to see because I think here in America, we have a tendency to be very self-focused, um, focus on self-love, very yeah. professional, kind of a sterile environment. Um, and it's easy to get caught up in that. But the trip created, uh, for me, um, so much awareness of the needs around me and and translating that to how am I going to take it back home? And I think it's just what you guys touched on is just being aware of the, like who needs help around you, like start from square one. And yeah, I just, it's inspired me to give in ways that I didn't, I didn't um, really think about before the trip. And so I was thinking of Richard Rohr. I think he wrote that true contemplation is really pretty down to earth and practical and it doesn't require life in a monastery. And I I just like how he put that. I think that 
we kind of think of like enlightenment as this, you know, we go away to get enlightened, but as you two are speaking to, there's just this, this on the ground, um, there's ways to just get involved and give and, and that it brings us together in a way that I think we need. Absolutely. And in the big looming question of how do I absorb this, you know, what's going on, even with the war, like before I went on this trip, I was absorbing so much news um, and emotionally, like getting very emotional about it. And that's not bad necessarily. I think, you know, there's an awareness that we're an information heavy culture, but on the same hand, it's good to be impacted by this because it moves you into action. That's the first step is compassion and feeling, knowing that this is, things are happening to real people, that, that step of compassion and feeling someone else's pain actually moves you to do something. And so I would say, obviously, like, you know, taking care of yourself is important, but Maybe if, if you're a person that feels deeply and has felt impacted by what you've seen on the news or even had the thought of like, I wonder if I could join the people on the ground or, or conversely, like feeling the experience of being incredibly inspired by seeing volunteers in Poland, like hand out flowers to, to women on International Women's Day. Like I remember when I saw that and I was like, that is incredible. That is so cool. So I don't know. There's just something connected to, yeah, connecting all these pieces of feeling and action and doing, and then coming back around again to staying grounded and taking care of yourself. I think they're all connected. I don't think that right. there's really uh, a negativity to caring for yourself, but obviously it needs to be channeling outward t- as well. And maybe that's like, maybe that's the lesson in it too. Yeah, that's so good, Lauren. I, my question that, or that brings up a question for me when you talk about like what it looks like to kind of read the news and, and to make sense of things before you left, has that changed for either of you? Like how you um, kind of take that in and, and kind of continue to follow this, what's happening there? Yeah, so on the news, there's, not a lot of reports of um, positive things that are happening um, in Romania and in Ukraine. And so I think going on this trip has really helped me shift perspective that it's not all bad things that are going on. There's so much um, good that is happening. And, and that was so refreshing to see. And so, yeah, that was powerful um, shift in perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say if you can, like, follow some of these nonprofits on social media, watch what they're doing, like, follow Vital Solutions, follow Fight for Freedom, follow World Kitchen. So, I think if you are taking in news, make sure you're like keeping up with what the people on the ground are doing because that's the real tangible action. And that is what is keeping people able to survive this conflict and so Mm -hmm. and and that will fuel you to be like oh I want to go volunteer or oh I want to like support them and be a monthly donor those are the action steps I think is just just understanding like the human side as well as like you know because it can be so devastating to see these images of 
Bucha and like some of these smaller communities that have just been devastated by the war. But there's people driving into Ukraine every day, like going and setting up these mobile kitchens and, you know, doing a pop-up bakery. And it's just so cool. Like Mm -hmm. it's encouraging. It's really restored, I think, our faith in humanity. Mm -hmm. After what's gone on in our own country of people just tearing each other apart. Mm -hmm. I'm like wow like people actually can be really good too they can be really powerful in their ability to give and compassion and love wow yeah that's that's really powerful um Lauren we'll have to we have to create some show notes so we can like link to some of these things were you speaking to is it world central kitchen yeah yeah that's exactly the organization um I want to look more into that and I'd love to share it with people because I think there is definitely interest and a need to kind of get connected to whether it's on social media or some other um, way to kind of follow what's happening there through some of these local organizations or nonprofits that are there. Right. Well, we just really appreciate Rachel, um, the opportunity to share Mm -hmm. this experience. I think people ask us like in passing, like, how was it? And it's like, well, it was good, you know, but like, where do you start? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this, I'm really encouraged because I can send people now to this conversation and have it be kind of a thank you to my donors, a thank you to anyone who gave, because you are a part of this experience as much as anybody else, your money, um, your encouragements, your support of me and Marie, our community supported us in massive ways. So we just mm-hmm. want to say on this podcast thank you to everyone who supported this experience because it has massive ripple effects in the world and so we're just really grateful too for our conversation with you Rachel if your heart is moved by this conflict and you're looking for ways to give or get involved please visit our episode details and find links to our trusted nonprofit partners working on the ground with refugees at the border and bringing hope to those actively sheltering in Ukraine. Thank you so much for caring.